My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Alana Catapan. It's an ongoing challenge to ensure that the collective movements of ordinary people that have shaped the world in the past are not forgotten, and that their struggles can be remembered to inform the movements of today. There are a range of ways that this kind of activity happens. Some projects emphasize preserving material in archives. Others focus on interviews or on using primary source material to write histories that push back against erasure and forgetting. Some projects make use of the resources, institutional legitimacy, and rigor of the academy, while others ground the work of remembering directly in communities or movements. Some focus on more traditional approaches, whether that's brick-and-mortar archives or scholarly monographs, while others take advantage of the possibilities offered by technology and online connectivity. Rise Up is a digital archiving project focused on Canadian feminist struggles between the 1970s and the 1990s. It began with a group of women, many of whom had themselves been involved in feminist organizing in those years, and some of whom are also scholars. They were very aware that the active participants in those struggles were getting older, and there was a growing danger of losing the movement papers, publications, and ephemera that have mostly survived in boxes in people's attics and basements. And they didn't just want to preserve this material, they wanted to make it easily available for researchers, for students, and for feminist organizers today to learn from. Moreover, many of them had been involved specifically in the socialist feminist wing of the movement, and they particularly wanted to be sure that this more radical strand of feminism, a strand that was quite politically significant in the Canadian context, was remembered. To make a given document available, it is scanned and run through character recognition software. This means that searchable text is associated with each scan, making it easier for people to find the material that they're interested in. Character recognition software isn't perfect, so each item is double-checked by a volunteer, and then appropriate tags and metadata are added, again with the goal of making searches more efficient. The project began by digitizing three publications by socialist feminist formations based in Toronto during the Target era. The International Women's Day Committee Newsletter, Rebel Girls Rag, and Cayenne. The original plan after that was to build the archive in a sort of crowdsourced way by issuing a call-out for people with accumulations of movement material from that era to scan items themselves, submit them, and then Rise Up would do the character recognition and the tagging. That proved to be impractical, so they began a partnership with the Nellie Langford Rowell Women's Studies Library at York University in Toronto to digitize material from their holdings, and have moved forward acquiring new material in a range of other ways. Though they have occasionally managed to get small amounts of project funding for individual pieces of the work, the archive as a whole is sustained by volunteer labor. The Rise Up Archive website aims to present as much material as possible in as accessible a way as possible. It includes not only scans of movement publications, but cultural material as well, like song sheets and buttons and so on. 
Along with the basic search function, users can access content via carefully crafted narratives produced by the collective that highlight actions and issues that they have judged to be particularly significant. From the struggle for reproductive rights and choice that raged in those years, to women's organizing within the labor movement, as well as a couple of particular strikes, to the struggles of indigenous women, and much more. They also have pages describing particular organizations and their relationship to feminist struggles in those years, from the Congress of Black Women of Canada, to Voice of Women, to the Lesbian Organization of Toronto, and, again, much more. At this point, their holdings continue to overrepresent Toronto and Ontario, as well as the socialist feminist current. Their ongoing work of broadening and deepening the archive's holdings is particularly focused on increasing the representation of other parts of the country and of the organizations and struggles of black and indigenous women and women of color, disabled women, and other marginalized women. To that end, they actively invite supportive people to donate money, volunteer hours, or movement material that might belong in the archive. Alana Katapan is an assistant professor of public policy at the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan, and she is part of the organizing committee of Rise Up. I speak with her about the archive, and about what can be said about the women's movement in Canada between the 1970s and the 1990s, based on the archive's holdings so far. Hi, I'm Alana Katapan. I'm an organizing committee member at Rise Up, a Canadian feminist digital archive, and also an assistant professor of public policy at the Johnson Choyama Graduate School of Public Policy. And I'm talking today, I guess, about Rise Up, which again is a digital feminist archive of Canadian feminist activism that focuses on more radical initiatives in the Canadian feminist movement from the 1970s to the 1990s. I wouldn't say I was like a feminist since birth, but certainly my whole life. My mother took me as a child to take back the night marches in Sudbury, which is where I'm from. And the Montreal massacre was a really critical event to many Canadian women and Canadian feminists and happened when I was a young child. And I remember my mother crying and watching the news about 14 women being killed at Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal. And that being a really impactful moment for me, seeing her react to women dying simply because they were ambitious women. And so I think from that point on, I have been my whole life struggling for gender equality and equality for marginalized people in general. I came to rise up, though, in a different way. I'm a political scientist by training, and I was doing my PhD at York University and teaching a course called The Politics of the Canadian Women's Movement. I started poking around about what my students might encounter online if they were searching those keywords. And I was really surprised that there weren't more documents, more information about Canadian feminism online. It was really shocking to me as somebody who worked in the field. And so I started looking around for more. So my students, we realized that there wasn't much on Canadian feminism online. So I designed an assignment where they could add to what was online by contributing to the Wikipedia article on feminism in Canada that existed. And I started doing some writing about that, about that assignment, and also the dearth of digital contributions about Canadian feminism online. There was a few things that were coming out to a popular audience. There was a book by Michelle Landsberg and another by Judy Rebick that were destined for the public. But most of the other contributions about histories of Canadian feminism weren't either designed for the public or going online. So I wrote a paper about this with digital humanities scholar Quinn DuPont about how we might take Canadian feminist histories online. That's how the people who were involved in the organizing group found me. But I wasn't there at all at the beginning. But I talked to them the other day. 
Many of the women who are in the organizing committee were there at the beginning, and they had a lot to say about it. In fact, it was a very lively part of our monthly meeting this month as I asked them to give me more information because I hadn't talked about it with them before. So when I talked to them this week, they told me that they were getting a sense that there were digitization of certain Canadian feminist documents happening, especially Broadside, which is a major Canadian feminist magazine. But they wanted to make sure that the radical current of feminist activism in the 70s through to the 90s was captured as well. And the other initiatives they thought were really good, but they weren't the whole story. But they had the whole story because many of them had documents still in their houses. There was a box of buttons under one person's bed in order to start archiving what they knew people had and to make it searchable. So they got together to start with three periodicals, and then it's grown from there. At the beginning, the things like the International Women's Day Committee of Toronto Newsletters, the Rebel Girls Rag and Cayenne, which were the first three periodicals that we committed to putting up. Again, I wasn't there for that part, but they put those up. Those were scanned. They went through character recognition software and simply put up on a different version of the website than currently exists. But the sense was after they did those three periodicals that they would put out a call to people around to scan things themselves that we would then run through character recognition software and add tagging or metadata to. But somebody said the other day that they had their 70s caps on. It was maybe a bit ambitious to ask for that kind of curation from the community. So they spoke to the Nellie's Library at York University, which has a lot of feminist periodicals that have not been digitized. Franca Yacoveta, who is a really noted feminist historian at the University of Toronto, but also a member of our organizing group, she received some funding from the Berkshire Conference of Women Historians, which was holding a big conference in Toronto in 2014 to do some of the digitization, to fund students to do some digitization. So we selected some things from the Nellie's Library, which was very generous in providing these documents to us and got them scanned and up on the website. So really, when we identify a periodical or buttons or music or whatever we're putting on the site, it goes through a process of what would happen in a regular archive. So it's digitized in the highest quality of scan that we can acquire. And then it's run through very careful character recognition. We don't just run it through the software. We have volunteers, and some of us do it as well, where we go through to make sure that the character recognition is as accurate as possible. I think 90% or 94% is our goal of all character recognizing. So you can search any document that goes up on the archive, and then we tag it with relevant topics so that they're also, you can search the topics and identify what you're looking for if you're searching this as a researcher or somebody who's just interested in things. So why would you say it's important to be making this material available online? The Canadian women's movement was a really critical, well, it continues to be really critical, but the moments that people came together, the kind of energy that was happening, the different people who were involved in the kind of work that was done was a really important moment in history because things changed due to the actions of women getting together and publishing these periodicals to reach out to one another, organizing events, participating in rallies engaging in lobbying, developing policy proposals, all of this really changed the shape of women's experiences in Canada. And so there's been a sense that as women that were really involved in the 70s through to the 90s, but especially at the early period, are getting older as their houses are getting cleaned out, we're really losing some of this information. And we wanted to make sure that it was captured for future generations so that we don't make the mistakes or engage in the kinds of struggles that people had to go through in the past, but also to capture it for researchers. The more that we put up online, the more we see the ones of us who are in the organizing group who are scholars, the more we're seeing some of those documents cited. We see that people are able to access a more rich history of what's happened in Canada over time simply because we've put it up online. 
How does the organizing committee work in terms of process? In terms of categorization, in terms of the tabs that are there, it's just a negotiation between the organizing committee members, which I guess now we're a board since we've incorporated. We're pretty conversational and we make decisions in a really almost a consensus kind of way. There's a lot of emails that go back and forth. We have a really robust Google Drive that we share things on and things just go back and forth. Over time, we've developed like Mark McPhail, who's been a feminist activist for, I want to say like going on 48 years, something like that, who's a union activist as well, is really good at keeping us on task. She's been in the union movement for a long time and she knows how to run a meeting. And between her and Tara Cleveland, who runs most of the tech on the site, if not all of the tech on the site, the two of them usually figure out a way, the best possible way. So it's not as if we have to make a lot of decisions. The things that they come to are usually things that the rest of us will be quite amenable to. Who's involved in Rise Up? As somebody who's a relatively young scholar, I have only been in an academic position for the last few years. Most of the women involved in the collective have been involved in the women's movement for so long and are illustrious. I feel so grateful to be amongst them. Nancy Adamson is not as active these days, but was certainly really critical in the development of Rise Up. And Nancy was involved in the women's movement. She's been involved since the 1970s. She was involved with the Lesbian Organization of Toronto, the International Women's Day Committee, the Ontario Coalition for Abortion Clinics, National Action Committee on the Status of Women. It goes on and on. She also was involved in the Canadian Women's Movement Archives and its establishment. And so she was really helpful and so broad thinking in how to sort out what the shape of the archives would look like. Linda Briskin was one of the three or four people who, at the very beginning, had a clear vision for the development and expansion of Rise Up. She was a women's studies scholar at York University, but also she has ongoing commitments to feminist activism and just drove this project, I think, at the beginning. Tara, I mentioned her before. She's just, I, I don't even know how to say how much she has saved this website, this archive, in terms of her digital prowess. She is our web designer and coder and an active feminist. And like, there's so many of us, like Sue, Holly, Maureen Fitzgerald. I need to mention Mark again, but there's also Meg Luxton, who's one of the founders of women's studies as a discipline in Canada. If you look through many of these archival documents, you'll find her name. Franca Giacovetta, who I mentioned before, is a well-known feminist historian, but also a feminist activist. Amy Gottlieb, she was really important to the International Women's Day Committee, which is one of the documents that we started to upload in the first place. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. <laughs> it goes on and on. But when you look at the history itself, when I go through these documents, when I'm digitizing some of them, their names come up again and again. This really is a project by women who are part of the women's liberation movement in Canada in order to retain their histories. And they've reached out to other people to help support and continue that for future generations of feminists. When I think of my own experiences of going through old movement material, there are two different ways, at least, that things jump out at me as being interesting. One is like, wow, that was super important. I'm glad that's being preserved. And the other way is smaller stuff, which may or may not be important on its own, but it's notable because it's so different from how things work today or because it's so similar. So talk about your experience of those two things, about the big stuff that has jumped out at you and about the everyday things that are interesting because of difference from or similarity to today. 
we've tried to distinguish some of those things or tried to pull out some of those substantial moments so people can find them more easily in the archive, as well as some of the more day-to-day mundane kind of things that people might be doing to you know, keep women's centers alive or keep their organizations alive or organize around a particular issue. The archive has publications from all across the country, largely focused in Ontario, but from across the country that are the newsletters of these organizations. Some of them only existed briefly, but some of them like decades. We have newsletters that are really about the inner workings of an organization, their plans for events year after year, their fundraising campaigns, that kind of thing. And so you sort of see the very slow evolution of these very specific organizations and their events. And from my perspective, as somebody who's been through a lot of the archive, you see the movement evolve over time if you're looking at many of these together, but in a, yeah, in a more quotidian or day-to-day kind of way. When I think about the larger moments in the Canadian feminist movements or things that might stand out as big moments of change, well, we've tried to pull that out. We have a section under the activism tab on the website called Issues and Actions, where we've written text to pull out very specific timelines of issues. So if I look at some of them, we have things like the campaign for childcare or issues related to family policy, reproductive rights, International Women's Day, LGBTQ organizing. And in each of those, you can see not only a general framing of the issue, but also those key moments and relevant materials in the archive that you could use to support the claims that we make or the story that we tell in the writing we've done about those various issues. Go into more detail about one or two of those that feel particularly important to you. My research as an academic focuses on the politics of reproduction in Canada and public policy related to that. So I wrote the section on reproductive rights and choice in collaboration with everybody. I want to make sure that that's really clear that we do these things and edit them and write them together, unless there's a specific name. In this case, I just sort of led the charge on reproductive rights and choice. In that example, there's a few paragraphs about the evolution of feminist organizing around reproductive rights in Canada, the Montreal Health Press's birth control handbook, which we don't host because it is hosted elsewhere, but we do link to it. So that happens in 1968. And then, you know, we talk through various things that happened in the 70s through to the 90s, including the criminal code amendment to decriminalize abortion in 1969, as well as the Morgan Teller cases and what happens thereafter. We have a few link outs in there to, for example, the Morgan Teller case. But then below we have posters from the abortion caravan or posters that advertise a rally against right to life discourse. Or we also have a brief from the Canadian Women's Coalition to Appeal the Abortion Law. A pamphlet about abortion is our right from 1970. So you can see the actual movement documents that support the claims that we make above. And so it really is meant in those cases where we've identified really key moments or key trends, key issues in the women's movement to pull out things to help researchers and other people visiting the site to see all of the things at a glance. What's your sense of how the archive is being used? In terms of the reception to the website, we know that people are using it. We get requests. We also get feedback from people telling us how much they like it, which is always really nice to hear. So the Canadian Museum of History, for example, requested use for an image that we hold for display. It's part of different museum exhibits across the country. People have asked for their use. So the Workers' History Museum, for example, is using some of our images for a documentary film, I believe. It's being used in teaching assignments. I know at the University of Toronto Scarborough, York, McMaster, and Ryerson have used them in different courses and different times, different instructors. We had a few years ago a request for permission to use images of two of our buttons for the television show A Handmaid's Tale. It's on Hulu. They, I believe, used two of the images for set design. 
and also as an academic working in this field, I am increasingly seeing our work being cited. Not that the website itself is cited, but that we'll see publications that are digitized and hosted on our archive cited in people's reference lists with then links to the website. So we know that we're being linked out quite a bit. In addition to that, we just got an honorable mention from Heritage Toronto, and we are asked frequently to come speak about the archive. So it seems like people are finding us. What are your experiences or experiences you've heard about from other collective members in terms of engaging with young women, maybe students, around the archive or around the movement of that era more generally? You know, I haven't. I'm teaching in a public policy school right now, and I wasn't involved when I was teaching the politics of the Canadian women's movement. But I will say that our volunteers are all young women, enthusiastic, incredible young women who do a lot of the digitization, but other things for the website as well. They approach us for the most part. They have found the site, are really enthusiastic, really excited to do something to keep this history going, and then want to help. So it seems that there is energy there. Again, we're being included in teaching assignments. The instructors reach back out to us to let us post their assignments so other people can take them up. And we've heard that they've had very good feedback about those. I believe one of our organizing committee members presented at the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation Conference at their women's conference a while ago. Ontario has a women's studies curriculum on the books. And so we're hoping that our work will be incorporated into high school classrooms. Historica Canada just included images and a mention of the website in one of their teaching resources. So there's great outreach to young women occurring largely through the educational systems. Not just young women, everybody. So one of my ongoing interests in terms of movement history projects is figuring out ways that this kind of material can be remembered in contexts outside of formal educational institutions. Ways that we can be remembering in community and in movements and so on. What's your sense of how the Rise Up archives are being used in that way and of how they could be? You know, that's not something I've thought about quite a bit because our goal is to be an archive. So is to make sure that we're hosting and curating as much as we can and ensuring that this is an accessible, useful resource for people who seek it out. We have conversations about this in the collective, about how much outreach and support we should do to make sure that people are able to reach it. It is a searchable website. The PDFs, too, are searchable. And some of us are content with having it simply exist in the world. And others are more interested in doing outreach for its potential use to increase hits to the site. I sort of sit in between those two things. I'm glad that people are using it, but there seems to be a lot of use of it on its own without an extensive outreach plan. The idea is that people will use it, but our current priority is not doing significant outreach, but making sure that the archive is as robust as possible. I asked earlier about why it's important to be doing this work, and I guess kind of returning to that theme, how would you say it's important specifically for feminist organizing that's happening today to be connected to the organizing that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago? That's a really good question. As we organize in public policy, in the streets and other places, it is really helpful to know that so many generations of women have come before and have struggled for many of the same things. As we, you know, observed the Kavanaugh trial in the States. Uh, that's a reference to the United States Senate confirmation hearings that happened earlier this fall for Brett Kavanaugh for a spot on the U.S. Supreme Court in the face of credible allegations that he had committed sexual assault. And thought about the generations of women who have had to testify in front of people who had assaulted them 
or the ways in which laws in Canada haven't changed enough or in the United States or elsewhere. It's so useful to be able to access the histories of people who have gone through this before, both as a source of strength and also as a source of strategy that we can see what other people have done. So as history repeats itself, it always does, we can look back to generations of women who have done this before. And although we have to continue to do it differently, possibly with different strategies, knowing that they're there and learning from them is critical. In a big picture sense, how would you like to see Rise Up grow and develop? And where would you like it to be in 10 years time? We are at the beginning in many ways. We've done a lot with the funding and things that we've had over time. The very limited funding this is run on mostly volunteer, no, entirely volunteer labor these days. We've accessed a lot of amazing publications, buttons and photos and more, but we are missing key elements of the Canadian women's movement. We do have a disproportionate focus on Toronto and a little bit on BC. We have some representation from Quebec, but the bilingual nature of the movement is not sufficiently reflected in the current publications on the archive. And so we want to do that. We want to fix it. We want to keep expanding. We know that it will always be a work in progress, but we want to make progress. Some of it is doing the kind of outreach that we have been doing in terms of giving presentations and letting people know about us so that they can let us know what they have and what we could use. It's also continuing to build strong relationships with existing archives, including real brick and mortar archives, in order to make sure that if they don't have the resources to do digitization of their feminist documents, that we might be able to take on some of that work. It is also a matter of fundraising in order to be able to do that kind of growth. And so all of those things at once. Although we aim to have a representative of socialist feminism for the most part, we are looking to ensure that we're representative of people's experiences across the country, which might be different from the experience in Toronto, of women of color's experiences, disabled women, women who belong to communities that aren't always as included in speaking about feminist activism as one thing. We're trying to make sure that we see intersectional experiences here. We've reached out extensively to Indigenous communities to try and get as many resources as possible, and we continue to do that. So we recognize that there are parts of this movement or parts of these movements that we are not part of or have not been part of historically, and that we can be accountable to them too if they are interested in being part of this website. What's coming up for Rise Up in concrete terms over the next six months? We are just about to embark on a fundraising campaign. Our donate button is under the contribute tab on the website. So if you sign up for our newsletter on the website, you'll get all the information about that. But in addition to that, we are continuing to think about secession for not just the organizing group, but for our tech lead person, Tara, and also for our volunteers, how to make sure that we're engaging in a process of replenishment of the organization in an ongoing way. I believe we're applying for charitable status in order to make sure that our donors have everything they need in order to feel like they're donating effectively so that people can have tax receipts. And we're continuing to seek out great things for the website to make sure it's as expansive as possible. We have documents as well to run through character recognition. We're continuing to do that and all of the work that we always do. You have been listening to my interview with Alana Katapan of Rise Up, a digital archive of feminist activism in Canada. You can find out more at riseupfeministarchive.ca. That's riseupfeministarchive.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.